Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Paul Griffiths, director of Paynes Hill Park Trust, an 18th century landscape garden that was created between 1738 and 1773 by the Honorable Charles Hamilton. Paul, hello. Hello, Matthew. Thank you for coming on the program today. Uh, We might as well dive straight in. What does the word leader mean to you? That's a great question. I think uh, for me, the word leader means someone who, who takes ownership, someone who takes responsibility for the, both the company they're running or the, or the people they're running, depending on what sort of leader they are. Um, someone who nurtures talent, and most importantly, I guess, someone who delivers results and whatever those results need to be. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? Um, it's one that's developed over, year, over many years. It's, it's one that I'd like to think is open. Uh, I'd like to think myself very accessible. Um, someone who's empowering for staff and that, you know, trying to let people get on with their jobs and you know, meet regularly with them. Um, sharing, um, most importantly, um, bringing out the best of people to deliver the best results. Now, of course, um, you need different sorts of leadership in different capacities. Have you found you you actually have a, a quite interesting career? You've not only are you uh, the uh, director at Payne's Hill Park Trust, but you have uh, been the head of operations for the Mary Rose. Uh, you've worked with the uh, the Soliant Museum uh, advisory panel. Did you require different forms of leadership in each of these institutions? Yeah, I, I guess I did, and it's been as I've been moving up from my career. Obviously, uh, you know, it's been managing different levels and different uh, expertise. It's certainly uh, something I've developed, uh, you know, different styles. So, see, every every person will often require a different a different leadership style. Um, as I've moved up in in different levels of leadership, I've had to adapt that style. Um, to be more, I had to have been become uh, more delegating than I than I probably used to be in my in my younger career because um, as, as you move up through your career you take on far more responsibility and you, and you need to be able to delegate you need to be able to you know get the right people in the right places to deliver for you as well Do you find delegation difficult? I did yeah I really did I really struggled with it in my in my younger career um, there was something that uh, previous, uh, previous managers and leaders of life would, would really try and work on me to develop I was sort of running myself into the ground and trying to do everything myself and I think I, I, I it was an element of trust for me I think well if I do it myself I know I'll do it right and I just uh, realised after time it was going um, to send me to an early grade if I carried on like that so I Well you're not alone You're not alone quite a lot of the leaders I speak with um, have had these things where they're so used to being in the trenches uh, for lack of a better term uh, that when it comes to this uh, situation where they have to devolve authority, they're very happy to do so, but the old habits die hard. Yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely. And that was, um, I found very hard at some point to drop back from being operational. When you, when you start your, your career, I'm sure so many people you speak to and on the sort of front line of whatever the career they are working on, you know, the, the lowest rank of the ladder, you know, you, you, I found it hard to sort of drop back and, Entrust that into someone else, really, but uh, it's something I've had to do. Um, and, and, I, and I've been so proud of some of the results of when I have 
you know, being able to do that and, and watch other people flourish, which is which is what I love to see happen. Well, let's go back to the very beginning of your career, the start of your working life. Were there any particular individuals or even set of circumstances that formed the way that you lead today? Yeah, there's a, there's a couple of uh, individuals. I was I was working. I worked for English Heritage for for a number of years, and these really two examples will come up. Um, I was a sort of frontline person delivering, you know, frontline customer service and ticket sales and retail at uh, Charles Darwin's house, our house, and one of our volunteers, Sally, no longer with us, chap called Jeff Cockett, who's been uh, involved in uh, all sorts of scientific, uh, right at the very top um, of his game. And he sort of took me under his wing in a young, in a young me and really sort of developed me, spent a lot of time, you know, a little cups of tea and coffee together, what he really helped me develop. Um, talking a lot about leadership and how you needed to manage and how you needed to be responsible and also really helped me moving up the ladder because one of the problems I had in, in early in my life, and I'm sure so many people do, is they were going for leadership and management roles but being told you didn't have the experience for them. So, you know, it was, um, it was a case of really trying to uh, listen to Jeff's advice and, and really try and work out where I had had skills and responsibilities before. And then the second person uh, was a leader who I still have so much time for and she really did develop for me, um, still potentially me, gave me a amazing opportunity to, to backfill a role as so she got promoted and then eventually we both got those those, sort of, those jobs permanently and she really drove me. She was one of the first people that really made me delegate, made me take a lot more responsibility and, and I certainly wasn't where I was today if I hadn't worked for her. I'm still so grateful for that for that time and that, that you know, A opportunity she gave me, B advice she gave me and C, you know, the um the the, the skills that I was able to learn from her and the sort of organisation and the management skills that I learned from her in those days have just driven me through to this day and I'm still very grateful to her for that. Now, of course, leadership has many different forms and comes from many different people. But if I pressed you to identify the single greatest leader, living or dead, who would that be? Gosh, that's a really, really good question, isn't it? And there's so many answers answers you can give. I mean, someone I, I have a lot of time for, um, and I've read pretty much all of their books uh, and, and tried to use some of the things they teach in this book, Mr. Richard Branson. I, I found him always to be very inspiring. Um, uh, and you know his book, um, which is you know most wonderful quickly books that you my my book office full of, um, which was around screw it, let's do it about really just taking taking chances, almost letting you know giving something a go, letting that become the business case, and and just chancing stuff. I've I've really tried to do it in my early career. I was very nervous about taking risks and very worried about the consequences. And while you know you don't want to take silly risks. Um, I've really tried in the, the last few years to really work on saying, well, let's give that a go. Let's try that and let's see what happens there um, rather than rather than taking the risk diverse attitude. So I guess it's probably quite an obvious answer, but I guess Sir Richard would be the person I'd, I'd look up to most as a leader. Do you feel that you could integrate his leadership style into your own? In some ways, I guess you can. And um, listening to his latest autobiography as an, auto, as an audio book, um, was quite inspirational in that sense, and there's loads of little tips and things in that. I think certainly his his style around, you know, his leaders come to him with those. I just want him with an idea, and he gives them the you know authority to to, to make it happen. I think it's a is a great way of doing it, and you know he keeps on top of everything as well. And you know, I was amazed in his 
stories of you know the amount of balls that were, were juggling at once, but actually being able to keep on top of them all. But by having great people around you, and I think that's one of the most important things. You, you can't do it all by yourself. I think that goes back to my delegation. You know, issues when I was a lot younger is now is about getting great staff, training them, developing them, trusting them, and, and watching them watching them shine. It's been something I've, I've really enjoyed doing over the years. Well, obviously, uh, their example is very much uh, being shown because at Painsville, you're not just uh, preserving a landscape, you're also restoring one. Um, could you uh, elaborate a bit more about that process? Yeah, I mean, Painsville is an amazing place. It was, as you touched on in your introduction, uh, an 18th century landscape garden that sadly got lost in anyway to describe it. And Painsville after the Second World War and, and it was overgrown and into a dreadful state. So, the my you know, for the forebears of the trust is sort of started up the uh, the campaign to save the gardens and then there was a major major project to to restore the grounds and many of the garden buildings that, that Charles Hamilton created. So in some cases it was a restoration project, in other cases it was a completely building from scratch. Um, today we well I mean the restoration will never be complete because there'll always be stuff we need to be doing. And we're trying to work within a sort of bubble of having for visitors so you'll see Hamilton's grounds as they were. Um, and today we are, a, you know, a thriving a tourist attraction, which um, it, we need to really develop on public awareness of us because of really we've only been open for around 20 years because the, the project only restarted in the mid 80s, and and the it was you know a good few years before it was in a space that people wanted to come and visit. So we really have to to drive our, our business numbers, drive visitor income, diversify our you know our commercial and our income streams because uh, as an independent charity, uh, every penny comes in. We need to you know we, we expense very easily. So it's a real challenge looking ahead for the pain pill how we how we can remain financially sustainable. And that's my big piece of work that I was brought in by the trustees to do a year and a half ago, really, to, to, to turn it into a financially sustainable business. And what does the next 12 months have in store for Painsville? Gosh, the next 12 months is, is one of trying to deliver a, a balanced budget, which I know will sound ridiculous to so many of your, your listeners, business, but we are you know, a charity that needs to get to a position where we're not relying on our reserves, um, and we are you know, commercially operating to a level. So the next 12 months for me is going to be driving all sorts of business uh, avenues, looking at areas the trust hasn't looked at before, making the most of all of our assets. You know, lots of buildings can be used for other uses. And really it's just going to be about um, making things here, I know I've used this phrase already, but financially sustainable so that it can survive for the current and future generations to enjoy. So my next 12 months is a is a is a lot about driving income, reducing costs where we can, and and delivering a, a, a situation where pain still is is a, is a going concern. Well, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing leadership with you, and I very much hope you come back on the program at some point in the near future. Paul, thank you. Thank you for having me. That was Paul Griffiths, director of Paynes Hill Park Trust. And now, if you haven't heard it before, it's Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. 
Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it, and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Although there are one or two people who are very familiar um, uh, who do Google me realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or or football, obviously the importance of leadership it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes. Was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at the football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and the manager over many, many, many years. He and He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with, he'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in Sir Alf Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's, that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the calibre of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he, how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is 
at the top is absolutely vital for a, a for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you that the business was well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership and that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously... Uh, after uh, at West Ham, your uh, plan came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man I'm sure when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, the first thing I say about Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, naturally it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you it can have a, a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and of course your life but yep. in that era I was involved for six or seven years he it was quite clear who was the boss he was quite very very strict probably at a time it, maybe overly strict but at a time you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now but he was the most powerful man I came across and very few people and he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who he didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group part of a team it is important that if you've got a group of people and that's in any walk of life they're all singing off the same hymn suit and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organization, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in a group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious things I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a, a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, Jeff, you could uh, perhaps pick right now that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team or certainly in the squad and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it. But looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of the group. Um, so that that's that for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be playing in, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against 
Uruguay. He started off with Jimmy Green and Roger Hunt. So I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back into him because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Green's leg. And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I, I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Uh, not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out. Mm. So I never really felt, people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people, players talk about, people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure, pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again, the leadership that Alf showed. He, he got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were a very... I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Um, we have some great players, but overall, they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I... I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about twenty minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> but the, the the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And of course I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal and I looked round, put my foot on the ball and looked round for a little while and said, oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch. So that's, uh, I've had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that and saying, yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited to just have a, have a glance round, you know. Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um, oh, yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you to. It won't be too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three mm. years ago, and most stu- stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, 
Uh, well, you want me to tell you if you want. You've got time, I think. Tell, I tell do. You want. Jeff, go on. Go on. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing it at a dinner in, in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard somebody at the back who who asked a question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give mm. this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses its shell, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what, what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. But then again, I found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make it again, laugh that day. If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of the fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. No, um, well, it, it, it's okay for a third party to do it. Perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch is people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but... There's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and 
the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck. Absolutely. That's, that's absolutely leadership. He'd be the best example, of course, in, in football terms today. Uh, easily, easily. And of course, but going back not that long ago, Alex Ferguson is just absolutely, mm. you've got to take him as the first example, but Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United, and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, the answer is straightforward. The answer is yes. Um, they, answer. <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, and I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England, who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later. Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, many. yeah, so many, and that's why we we're successful because we had so many um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team. I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about. Uh, all of them in, in that breath, and there was nobody. And I've been going back on an earlier earlier question for me: that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days every year uh, up until about five years ago. Of course, with, with the sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish. After '66, that reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't and, when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those, I would pick every one of the eleven players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else; they were all outstanding. And I think that was. A big part. I can't stress how big Absolutely. a part that was, and I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We have some great and players. You... We have some great players, of course, but without the attitude uh, alongside that, going back to an earlier question, you we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word the word is showed... the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk sometimes. Uh, together, everyone achieves more, and that—that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. 
and uh, lastly, uh, Jeff, looking, if, if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life, what would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, uh, single-mindedness dedication, dedication to the job, um, thinking about that, that, that role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But it, you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused. You're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to, nice to have a talk about this and just go over the, go over the past and just uh, refresh my, mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.